Hi. I'm Lone Gandal. Was slavery, Jim Crow, and segregation really that bad? Did American society really repeatedly screw the descendants of slaves, like some say? The answer is yes, and it begs the question, should the United States pay some sort of reparation in a formal apology for slavery and discrimination? The answer to that is complicated. Below, I cover the dark history of American society's poor treatment of blacks. Then I describe a reparations program I'd be sympathetic towards before explaining why I'm skeptical of reparations in general and flat out against any but a relatively small reparations payout. Sometimes when you look deeper into bad things, they aren't as bad as they appeared from further away. That is not the case with historical black discrimination. United States society, government, and people repeatedly shit on blacks for hundreds of years. It's sad, embarrassing, and shameful. Let me briefly cover this somber history in case there are some major moments you have forgotten. The slave trade involved shipping people in horrible conditions across the Atlantic. People were stacked on top of each other, living in their own shit. Many died on the journey. Some slaves were taken from wars between African tribes, wars that would have happened with or without European demand for slaves. However, the demand increased the extent that African tribes gained slaves. Sometimes they'd overly enforce laws, other times they'd raid other tribes, stealing free human beings in terrifying moments that resulted in them and their descendants living in chains. Slavery itself is an insult to human freedom even if slaves were treated kindly. However, slaves were not treated kindly. They were whipped, raped, separated from their spouses and children, and traded like property. When black slaves finally got their freedom in 1865, they were destitute and had limited options. Many agreed to continue farming the same land in sharecropping systems that were designed to screw former slaves. Plantation owners would deduct food and living costs from earnings, often leaving the croppers indebted to the owners. This obligated them to work until their debt was paid off, effectively re-enslaving them. If these croppers tried to leave or seek other work, local sheriffs would arrest, assault, and murder the croppers. If the owners committed the violence themselves, sheriffs would condone it. Sharecroppers were unfairly charged high interest rates and debts accrued would have to be paid off by the labor of descendants. Owners wouldn't even give the croppers what they agreed to, often cheating the former slaves out of money owed. Sharecropping didn't give much economic opportunity, giving the former slaves a tough outlook and often making them free in name only. Blacks were frequently falsely accused of owing money then biased courts would convict them, damning them to debt slavery. As of 1900, there were tons of letters written to the president describing the unfair enslavement of family members. Eventually, the federal government investigated and validated such complaints. Ringleaders were punished with minimum sentences 
and the government moved on. The debt slavery continued because the political will to end it was not there. When former slaves owned land, it sometimes was stolen from them for debts or taxes supposedly owed. Not being able to read or having connections to a lawyer or the court and living under a justice system partial to whites, blacks would lose everything and have no choice but to sharecrop. Other land was stolen by violence and the threat of violence. Sharecropping did affect whites and immigrants too, but blacks had less access to rights to fight it. Only in the 1940s was debt slavery ended as President Roosevelt thought slavery would make the United States vulnerable to Japanese propaganda. The South would penalize blacks for all sorts of little things, including startling a white woman, speaking loudly in the company of a white woman, selling produce after dark, walking along a rail line, and not being employed. How one proved they were employed was by having a white man say you worked for him. So this made blacks dependent on the grace and employment of whites just to stay out of prison, either as direct punishment for supposed crimes, or when poor blacks couldn't pay fees, they were imprisoned. Prison wardens sold or leased prisoners to plantations, mines, and factories to work. From the end of Reconstruction to World War II, it's estimated that 100,000 were enslaved in this way. Sometimes people would falsely accuse blacks of owing money, but the truth of the accusation didn't matter. The courts were biased against blacks, who were often convicted without regard for the truth. There would be periods of times without large amounts of blacks being sent to prison. Then a need for labor would come in, and suddenly blacks were charged left and right for a variety of crimes. The justice system was used to provide cheap labor and to shit on blacks with massive logs of injustice. Researchers have looked in courts for evidence of these waves of black crimes, but the evidence isn't there. All these ticky-tacky and bullshit arrests created statistics that helped create the impression that blacks were a criminal people. Later, instead of convict leasing, chain gains would work for the state on things like road projects. The Jim Crow laws of the South ripped blacks from the limited rights they gained during Reconstruction, preventing them from gaining political power and forcing them to be segregated and unequal. In 1930s rural Louisiana, black kids were expected to work on farms, so had shorter school years than whites. It's hard to pull oneself up into the educated economy when as a kid you got less schooling because of the color of your skin. Anti-black violence across the South was rampant. Racists, murdered blacks, and law enforcement would regularly fail to prevent or punish such, such acts. Blacks moved north and west in great waves of migration to escape their hell in the South. However, there, they faced more discrimination from people in government, unequal segregation, and violence. States and localities banned marriage between blacks and whites, and even banned blacks from being in a town's borders after dark. If not made an official ordinance, police and organized mobs enforced such bans anyways. Sometimes, blacks living in certain towns were forced to flee white mobs. In areas that had too large of black populations to kick out, whites made zoning regulations creating separate living areas for blacks and whites. These would forbid blacks from buying on majority white blocks, 
1917, such regulations were overturned by the Supreme Court. However, many cities ignored the decision, often using a lot of bullshit reasoning to claim similar laws were technically constitutional. Cities banning integrated housing existed often until the early to late 60s, although some existed in the late 80s. Starting in the 1910s, local and federal officials promoted policies that restricted certain neighborhoods to single-family homes, preventing poor blacks from entering such neighborhoods, and these laws were at least partially racially motivated. Other zoning decisions were strategically made to keep white areas all white, and zoning allowed polluting industry, liquor, incinerators, toxic waste facilities, landfills, prostitution, and the like in black areas. City councils cared about white objections to these things in their neighborhoods, but not black objections. The placing of undesirable operations in black areas reinforced the perception of blacks as slum dwellers, which contributed to white flight. Not only did this worsen quality of life in these areas, the FHA used that black homes were close to undesirable things to consider a mortgage to these areas risky. Without FHA mortgages, blacks had to pay more for housing. This took away resources that could have been used to upkeep the homes, reinforcing slum conditions. So these zoning strategies screwed many blacks when it came to getting amortized mortgages. Majority white neighborhoods have more parks and tree cover, more access to medical care, more experienced teachers, and more challenging curriculum. Blacks and whites were segregated in federal service, and blacks were even demoted to make sure a black wouldn't supervise a white. Grand legislation that helped pull up the middle class like the GI Bill and Roosevelt's New Deal were discriminatory, giving great help to whites, but mostly ignoring blacks. Industries where most of the labor was black were excluded from New Deal protections against minimum wage and child labor laws, giving white business owners cheaper labor. Labor union recognition and social security were also not applied. State and local governments behaved similarly. To get the New Deal passed, Roosevelt needed Southern support. For decades, the need for Southern support created laws that benefited whites, while leaving blacks behind. Presidents like Roosevelt didn't desire to shit on blacks, but the South did, and treating black people fairly wasn't his top priority, so political compromises were made. Often, blacks were only hired if needed to make full crews, and they couldn't be promoted to foreman or supervisory roles. The Federal Emergency Relief Administration of 1933 disproportionately helped unemployed whites and regularly didn't let blacks take any but unskilled jobs and paid them less. The National Recovery Administration had similar policies and used various technicalities and rules to pay blacks less than whites. Particular jobs in factories where blacks predominated were left out for wage increases. The Civilian Conservation Corps acted similarly. Unions would not allow blacks to join, or segregated them into lower-paid jobs. Yet, the government still protected these unions' bargaining rights. During World War II, when black labor was needed, unions would form auxiliary unions for blacks. Members here couldn't file grievances or vote, received less benefits and help, and were relegated to lower-paid work. 
the federal government would recognize segregated unions until 1962. Even after allowed into unions, seniority-based membership put blacks at the bottom. Blacks were excluded during home and highway construction booms after the Second World War by missing out on quality war production and suburbanization jobs. Blacks missed out on two huge wage growth periods of the middle 1900s. The 1944 GI Bill often limited education and training for blacks to lower level jobs, even if they were qualified for something better. Other services and agencies meant to help workers were discriminatory, or looked the other way when businesses were discriminatory, or failed to hire blacks even when qualified black workers were in the area and looking for work, sometimes instead leaving jobs open. During World War II, blacks moved to cities as factories ran out of white workers. This created a housing shortage, so the federal government created public housing, explicitly segregated public housing. The government made poorly constructed housing for blacks that was intended to be temporary, while whites were assigned better areas with construction intended for permanence. In many places, there were no blacks before the war, so this policy created long-lasting segregation that likely wouldn't have been so strong otherwise. In other areas, the government provided housing only for whites, so blacks instead lived in congested slums. Local police and the housing authority pressed for cities to forbid integrated activities, recreation, sports, scout troops, movie screenings, etc. Government work programs were segregated. The government helped recruit developers and gave low-interest loans but required that these new houses not be sold to blacks. It encouraged and helped financing the remodeling of houses to allow renting to a worker, a white worker. Whites moved to the suburbs with help of government-insured bank loans. Blacks didn't get such help, so they often had substandard construction or even made their own makeshift homes. Richmond, California wanted to make sure no blacks moved to town unless essential to the war effort, so the police stopped blacks and asked for proof of employment. No proof resulted in arrest and jail. Banks were hesitant to loan mortgages to the working class due to the risk. The federal government guaranteed mortgages to qualified buyers. Veterans got deals too. However, the federal government specified the requirement that the homes were not to be sold to blacks. A group of middle-class people tried to form a cooperative to build housing and a community. Banks wouldn't loan without government approval, but the government wouldn't insure the loans to a cooperative with blacks. This cooperative had some blacks. After fighting for a bit, the cooperative disbanded, selling their land to developers who created an all-white neighborhood. Blockbusting limited integration and hurt blacks' housing values. A black family would move into a white neighborhood, then real estate associations would panic white families that the neighborhood was going to shit and that they needed to sell their homes now before losing their value due to the possible wave of new black residents. These homeowners sold at discounted prices, then real estate agents would advertise to blacks and sell at inflated prices. This screwed both black buyers and white sellers and made the real estate agents a buttload of money. Banks and insurance companies responded to this by refusing to issue mortgages to whites in integrated neighborhoods. Blacks were excluded from so much housing 
that even if overall housing was plentiful, it was in short supply to them. So they were willing to pay inflated prices and then still double up in homes designed for one family. The houses were priced so much higher than similar houses for whites that blacks had trouble making the payments, further incentivizing renting parts of their homes. Instead of building schools in areas that would create integration, they were intentionally built to produce white schools and black schools. Not only did the people hold prejudices that created segregation, but federal, state, and local governments purposely created segregation all over the country. These governments often weren't following pre-existing racial patterns. Before World War II, many of these cities didn't have blacks, so governments created segregation or before it didn't exist. Public housing even destroyed black-white housing integration. Some neighborhoods were integrated because black and white workers needed to live close to factories that they walked to for work. The government came in and designated integrated neighborhoods as white or black, then installed segregated projects in those neighborhoods. Blacks were crowded into black-only neighborhoods, and not all could afford housing, so this increased doubling up. Government programs turned black neighborhoods into slums, often literally demolishing integrated neighborhoods to build segregated ones in their place. At times, when black housing was proposed near white housing, whites would riot, injuring blacks. In such riots, it was usually blacks who were arrested, even though the perpetrators were white. Politicians ran on preventing blacks from moving into white communities. Public housing for whites would have vacant units, while public housing for blacks would be overcrowded and have long waiting lists. In the 1960s, public housing authorities were actively segregating their sites, both putting developments in segregated areas and even evicting white families, resulting in all-black projects. In 1984, investigative reporters found that public housing tenants were almost always segregated, and predominantly white projects had better facilities, amenities, services, and maintenance. There has also been the practice of giving whites vouchers while steering blacks into projects. Only in 1998 did civil rights groups get the requirement that vouchers be offered to blacks too. Originally, public housing was for middle-class people. By the late 60s, the housing shortage lessened, and private developers convinced government to limit public housing to only include poor people. This resulted in deteriorated conditions because maintenance workers made too much to live in the buildings. Below middle-class rents were not enough for maintenance. The government didn't provide sufficient subsidies, and the lower-income people didn't have the political power to get the needed upkeep funds. In 1933, the federal government created the Homeowners Loan Corporation to help households who were about to default. It bought mortgages and issued new ones with long repayment schedules. The mortgages were amortized, meaning each payment included principal, not just interest. Thus, the household would be gaining pieces of ownership each month and gaining some equity. Although interest rates were low, the government still wanted monthly payments, so assessed the borrower's ability to pay by hiring real estate agents to do appraisals. The racial composition of neighborhoods was a part of their national ethics code, so race affected the, this appraisal. This is where we got color-coded maps that showed safe neighborhoods in green and risky ones in red. If blacks lived in a neighborhood, the neighborhood was red. This wasn't just correlational. Having a black in a neighborhood was officially grounds for considering the neighborhood riskier to loan to. 
The Federal Housing Administration was created in 1934. It ensured long-term amortized mortgages and also had to appraise, appraise risk. Its standard had a whites-only requirement. It determined that loans to racially mixed neighborhoods were too risky, making racial segregation an official part of the Federal Mortgage Insurance Program. If you wanted an FHA-guaranteed mortgage, you had to be white and live in a white-only community. Because areas considered risky were outlined and shaded on maps in red, this practice became known as redlining. Redlining was not banned until 1968 in the Fair Housing Act, but some redlining continued. Not being able to get a good deal on a loan and being forced to live and raise children in shittier neighborhoods is a huge economic disadvantage. One pushed on blacks by society and government, and done so because of race. Add on top of this job discrimination for the same reason, and it is no wonder that blacks were in such a poor condition economically. Suburbanization largely happened on the back of these government subsidies. The government helped create the suburbanized middle class, but blacks were left out. Subdivisions built for blacks had worse construction and design due to less financing. Because blacks were often denied FHA and VA loans, black areas had more renting. When an FH loan did default, the FHA made sure the home was resold to whites. Only rarely did the FHA approve loans for black developments. Another way blacks and others were kept out of neighborhoods were by deed clauses and neighborhood covenants. When a homeowner agreed to buy a home, somewhere in their deed or in a neighborhood contract or in a community association membership agreement was often a promise not to sell the home to a black or other racial groups, or sometimes a promise to sell only to whites. The FHA lowered risk estimates for properties with restrictive deeds. The VA recommended or demanded that properties have racial covenants. After many courts upheld such agreements, including the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court eventually declared these illegal in 1946. But they persisted long after. Even the FHA didn't initially change their policy based on the court's ruling, which technically didn't outlaw them but made them unenforceable in court. Once the FHA began obeying in 1950, it insured properties that got around the ruling with agreements that weren't explicitly racial, like requiring neighbors or a board to approve a sale. It wasn't until 1962 when the FHA stopped financing subdivisions that refused to sell to blacks, and local courts still upheld suits based on covenants for five years. The FHA in localities tried other ways to get around the Supreme Court's ruling, but eventually, the court cracked down with tighter rulings. Since the 1950s, new covenants became rare, but the old ones lasted a very long time, and the racial residential patterns they created often exist to this day. Covenants didn't just reinforce racial patterns, but also created them. For example, Minneapolis was not very segregated before racially restrictive deeds came into effect. Such deeds pushed blacks into small areas. Even as the black population grew, a larger part of the city became white only. Thus, in some cities, these deeds created the residential segregation that we see currently. Although FHA policy was motivated by a racist dislike of blacks that was prevalent in the country, they also had the excuse of protecting home values. Even if this was part of the motivation, 
This does not justify such behavior. The policy expanded and reinforced segregation, which bolstered people's racist attitudes. Wronging and screwing over a people based on the color of their skin is not justified by the potential impact on housing values. FHA policy also led to the evil tactic of blockbusting. White people were afraid of their neighborhood turning black, afraid because of a dislike of blacks, a fear of blacks, and concern about the value of their houses. This value was more affected by blacks because government policy would stop people from getting mortgages in the neighborhood if blacks moved in. Real estate firms would get white people scared that blacks were moving into the neighborhood. Sometimes they'd hire a black woman to push a carriage with babies through the neighborhood, or hire black men to drive through with radios blasting, or pay black men to knock on doors asking if homes were for sale, or have blacks call asking for typical black names. They'd also buy ads in black newspapers advertising the houses, even if they weren't for sale, to get blacks into the neighborhood looking for homes. All of this, as well as normal persuasion by talking up a fear of blacks moving into the neighborhood, was done to scare white homeowners into thinking that blacks were moving in and their neighborhood would soon turn. These whites would then sell their homes at reduced prices, and the agents would turn around and sell to blacks at marked up prices, screwing over both the white and black homeowners. This additionally added to white flight because more whites would flee after blacks moved in. Blacks couldn't get insured mortgages, so agents often sold houses to blacks using installment plans called on contract. Black families were responsible for the home maintenance, but they did not accrue ownership of the home until the entire bill was paid off. And if a payment was missed, the home went back to the agent. Many blacks fell into this trap, losing their home, the money and effort spent maintaining it, and all the payments. Agents would sell these homes again to new black families. Making the high house payments was difficult. This led to double shifts and man and woman working. It led to crowded houses and little money or time for maintenance and proper child rearing. This led to worsening schools and higher crime, which further confirmed the white belief that blacks ruin neighborhoods. Banks and insurance companies acted in ways that supported segregation, and government taxes and regulations supported these actions. State and local governments supplemented federal efforts to maintain segregation. Highway planners were racially motivated when they built highways that destroyed black areas. While these areas were blighted, this and other slum clearance tactics didn't come with help to move people into better places, so it just made things worse for those whose neighborhoods were destroyed. Localities would push blacks into certain areas, and once that was complete, parks in the area would close and municipal services declined. One tactic to move blacks was to put black-only schools in areas that the local planners wanted to be black. They did this with hospitals, too. And, of course, when regulations, service placement, and covenants didn't work to keep blacks out of certain neighborhoods, many whites resorted to mobs, violence, burning crosses, confederate flags, blaring music, throwing rocks, and property damage. The few whites who openly supported the moving in of a black family would have their property vandalized as well, 
Police rarely interfered, sometimes even joining in encouraging mobs. The main violent perpetrators were well known, but police often failed to act, or acted only weeks later, maybe because state officials intervened. There are lots of examples of people driving blacks out of neighborhoods. Official clubs would form to buy back black homes so they would have an easy out while they were being attacked. Homes were even firebombed, which sometimes resulted in deaths. This happened in a variety of cities over decades. Blacks were forced to move back to black neighborhoods. Many blacks must have never tried moving into white neighborhoods, knowing what awaited them. In 1968, the Fair Housing Act made violence to prevent neighborhood integration a federal crime, and the Department of Justice prosecuted several cases. However, frequent attacks continued into the 80s. In 1985 and 86, only a quarter of these incidents were prosecuted. From 1985 to 1990, however, the share in which charges were brought grew to 75%. The Southern Poverty Law Center documented 130 cases of move-in violence in 1989. Even in 1985, a house in a suburb of Louisville, Kentucky called Sylvania was bought by a black couple, then firebombed the night they moved in. A month later, an arson attack destroyed the house. A few hours before that attack, a speaker at a KKK meeting declared that no black would be allowed to live in Sylvania. The black family sued a police officer who was a member of the Klan. The officer testified that roughly half of the 40 Klan members he knew were in the police department, and that his superiors didn't care as long as they kept it secret. During the mid-1900s, local police and the FBI had huge campaigns to disrupt liberal-to-left groups as well as organized crime but they did very little to stop rampant nationwide violence and terror used against blacks. Officers who failed to do their duty weren't fired or suspended. Often, charges would be brought against blacks moving in or people who sold them a home instead of the actual violent property destroyers and intimidators. So white people are throwing rocks through windows with messages like, niggers get out, even using dynamite and firing guns. And the criminal justice system finds it reasonable to charge the black victims and the whites who sold them the home. This was all incredibly fucked up and was on top of official policy that gave loan deals to whites but not blacks, the putting of dangerous facilities in black neighborhoods, better government services for whites than blacks, official and community bans on blacks moving into white neighborhoods, and real estate agents taking advantage by giving blacks shitty deals just to live in a home, sometimes resulting in people losing the home that they worked hard to gain and keep. Not only did blacks face housing discrimination, but wage and job discrimination. Federal, state, and local governments worked with private employers to make sure that blacks were paid less and treated worse than whites. Cities and counties overtaxed blacks by assessing their homes at higher than market value compared to white homes. Studies on many cities document this. This is less money to save and less money to maintain one's home, worsening the neighborhoods and home values even more, making blacks' money problems even worse. People could also lose their homes due to delinquent tax liabilities. Landlords could get higher rents from blacks because blacks had so few housing options. Blacks doubled up three times more than whites. Because of limited housing options, blacks had to commute further for work. The time, 
cost of commuting, and job loss when commuting created absentee problems were all an additional cost of housing discrimination. Another disadvantage of being forced into segregated poor neighborhoods is that poor neighborhoods are overcharged rent. This happens because landlords in poor communities face more risks, so they raise rent to account for that. However, this hedging usually results in higher profits for the landlord. Whites pushed segregated banking, which didn't work well for blacks. There was a federal Freedmen's Bank, but it went under and a lot of blacks lost their money, as well as trust in banks, which disadvantaged them and their descendants down the line due to the advantages of banking. Banks would take deposits from blacks, then lend it to whites because the banks didn't trust black business owners, which means black money was used to help white people advance rather than also helping blacks, further limiting opportunities in black communities. At times, when black communities have had some success, they have been ravaged by white riots and white violence, an extreme example being the Tulsa race riot where a flourishing black community nicknamed Black Wall Street was attacked by a white mob in 1921. Another example is the massacre and destruction of the black town Rosewood, Florida. Starting in the 60s, the government started undoing its racist or segregationist policies. However, the segregation and the effect on blacks' wealth were long-term. The disadvantages of one generation were given to the next. Black wealth was greatly damaged. They were discriminated against for employment, they were cheated by government and people in society, and forced into worse homes and neighborhoods. This resulted in much less wealth for blacks. A major way to grow wealth is through home appreciation. White housing values appreciated vastly more than that of blacks. Once in worse neighborhoods, with more pollution, worse schools, and less adult role models, it became much more difficult to raise productive children who have the education, skills, and mentality to excel in the economy. The negative effects of pollution and violence on school performance have been demonstrated. Less summer job opportunities, less access to libraries and bookstores, less primary care physicians, less access to fresh food, and a concentration of disadvantaged children in the same classroom all add up to make raising successful children much more difficult. Studies have found that neighborhood effects are huge. Simply moving a family to a better neighborhood produces much better outcomes for children. The stress and lack of stability from parents being unemployed, less help with education from parents who have little schooling themselves, crowded houses with less places to study, and worse health care, decrease the chance of educational and occupational success. Of course, these challenges can be conquered, but the average student is much more likely to have worse outcomes when growing up with such disadvantages. Not only do whites have much more wealth to inherit, parents can use that wealth to support their children's development and to help them get started in life. Both parents and children can use that wealth to help them through rough times, and because the parents are wealthy, when kids succeed, they don't need to support their parents financially. Wealth allows spending throughout life that pays dividends, allowing children and children's children to thrive. Wealth is more valuable than the exact dollar count. It's very common for occupationally successful blacks to have less personal spending because they spend significant amount of money helping poor family members. By the time discrimination lowered to a point where blacks could reach the middle class, homes outside of black neighborhoods had largely become unaffordable 
for the working and lower middle classes. Once segregation is established, race-neutral policies hurt blacks. All the subsidies that suburban homeowners benefit from help whites much more than blacks. Sure, these aren't specifically racial, but the reason they help whites more than blacks is because of racially motivated policies and behaviors in the past. Subsidies and tax credits for low-income housing mostly build in segregated neighborhoods rather than integrated ones, further reinforcing segregation. From the end of World War II to 1973 were the boom years for the working and middle classes. Their incomes expanded greatly, but during this period, blacks weren't allowed to fully participate in this economy. By the time blacks' incomes could grow in the 60s, suburbanization was mostly done, so the era of cheap housing was over. After 1973, real wages didn't grow much, and by some measures were stagnant while home prices soared. So now, unaffordability keeps blacks out of white neighborhoods. All of these discriminatory laws and behaviors resulted in blacks separated from mainstream society, crammed into ghettos with difficult access to jobs and social services, where raising children and building a community was hard. Once the races live in a segregated manner, that locks it in for some time. As of 2020-2019, a typical white person lived in a 75% white neighborhood, with the neighborhood being only 8% black. A typical black lived in a 35% white, 45% black neighborhood. The long-term effects of all these housing discriminations are legion. One is that blacks were in a worse situation to get loans and ended up getting more subprime loans. When these went bust in 2008, many blacks got screwed. In 2010, the Justice Department said that lenders who peddled the most toxic loans targeted communities of color. Several other lawsuits found the same thing. This led, once again, to more homeless, more renting, more doubling up with relatives, and less stable neighborhoods. A study found that, controlling for other variables, including creditworthiness, blacks were more directed towards subprime loans than whites. Blacks tend to get worse mortgage rates. This could be because they shop less between different lenders, or Sasan, because lenders have been found to be more helpful toward white borrowers. Blacks tend to be concentrated at high-risk lenders, which tend to have more expensive mortgages, even for their lower-risk customers. To this day, white flight is still a thing. People still talk about good neighborhoods and good schools and bad neighborhoods and bad schools, and often a signal of a bad neighborhood is a high prevalence of black people. This makes it more challenging for blacks to have property values that rise at the same rates as whites and to have good schools in their areas. A variety of studies have done discrimination tests on home buying. They send many paired people to separately inquire about buying a house, either the same house or the same agent, and compare the responses of the owners or agents. Everything about each pair is the same, except their race. So, the differences in treatment are likely due to race. They do this with a large enough sample to hopefully balance out any random differences that can't be controlled for. Even in 2000, a study found discrimination against black and Hispanic home seekers in rental and sales markets. However, the effects are smaller than the same study done in 1989. Blacks and Hispanics were given less information and options when searching for a home to buy or rent. Less information, less helpful owners and agents, and seeing less properties makes the effort to find a home 
more costly, and time-consuming. It may also result in a less ideal choice compared to if one had the same help that a white person would receive. These studies find similar results in cities across the country, so it's not like we're talking about just one area here. Similar studies find similar findings with employment and credit markets. For example, studies have sent the exact same job application to similar places, but on one application, the person's name was a typical white name, while on the other was a typical black name. The typical white name application performed better. Some studies have looked into the long-term effects of slavery and other racist or discriminatory actions on people's psyches, both the DNA epigenetics and the trauma-based behaviors of parents have been passed down through generations and can create negative behaviors and psychological attributes in blacks that are a direct result of ancestor trauma. This has been called post-traumatic slave syndrome. The extent that police are racist is at times exaggerated and turns into unjustified hate against police. Also, individual events can be accurately or inaccurately blamed on police. However, it is clear that across time and space in the United States, there has been racial bias in police departments. Sometimes it's because officers are racist, but other times it's because the blacks are the people who bad cops can get away with abusing. In 1970, San Diego, three officers quit claiming that the force was too racist. The chief and captains interviewed every officer on the force, and it was clear that racist slurs were regularly used on the job. This wasn't the case of bad apples, but a bad orchard. Some officers went into the career for the wrong reason. Others went still under 25 and simply had not matured enough for such responsibility. Cops have reported that they'd abused their power, especially against young blacks, just for the person looking at them wrong. They didn't like their authority, even being subtly challenged by such people. Chief Norm Stamper said that in his first year as a cop, he'd see black men looking at him weird and bait them into punching him just so he could choke them out. Unions exacerbate the problem because they don't simply protect workers' rights, but defend bad cops. Police departments can contain bad cultures that take focus to clean up. Police can get into an us-versus-them mentality when they should be in partnership with their community. There has been a lot of improvement in police departments since the 1970s, but there is still more room for improvement and it will be an ongoing battle. I'm sympathetic toward cops because they have a tough job and it's often many young black males who commit crimes in some communities, so it's hard not to stereotype. One black officer wrote that he started to have bias against his own race. Nevertheless, it has been demonstrated that in many police departments, blacks have been treated unfairly. And this is yet another giant piece of shit dropped on the heads of blacks by the greater society. The United States doesn't have great wealth mobility, meaning a lot of children born to low-income parents remain lower income as adults. This is even more true for blacks. Thus, setting blacks back historically makes it hard for them to climb the ladder now. While I use a variety of sources, some for specific lines or information, and others just for background and confirmation, the story I tell about the treatment and segregation of blacks involving housing and employment focused heavily enough on one source that I'd be remiss not to mention it. The book, The Color of Law, 
by Richard Rothstein does a great job laying out this history, and I strongly recommend it if you want more examples and detail of this stuff that I briefly covered. As I said earlier, the history I just quickly went over is only worse when you dig into it deeper. There are examples after examples of outrageous and unfair actions and situations that really made the lives of blacks in America so much more difficult. And the bulk of this only stopped in the 1960s. That wasn't that long ago. Significant amounts of discrimination happened throughout the 20th century, and we have remnants of current discrimination today. Additionally, the consequences of historical discrimination will last for generations. Walking through how the descendants of slaves were treated begs the reparations question. It really feels like American society owes these people something. However, I'm still skeptical that reparations is a good idea.